but I do think that might be something Canadian about it in the sense that our judiciary is very powerful um, in a way that you don't actually see in most of the other common law states around the world in terms of the extent to which the judiciary can invalidate uh, legislation. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast are Gerard Kennedy and Mark Mancini. Gerard is an assistant professor at the University of Alberta's Faculty of Law, and Mark is a doctoral candidate at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. In today's episode, Mark, Gerard, and I discuss the differences between the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court of the United States, and why, in their view, Canada's Supreme Court should not be described as a partisan institution. Gentlemen, welcome back to Runnymede Radio. Pleasure to be here, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Well, we're very excited to have you both on the podcast today as we talk about broad trends in the Supreme Court of Canada and we think about the Supreme Court as an institution and the role that it plays within our broader uh, political uh, culture and, uh, and and political movements. Uh, and before we get into that discussion, and we're going to be talking a fair bit about a piece that you had appear in policy options earlier this year, and I understand that you have another piece on a similar topic that's going to be coming out in the hub very soon. I want to put out a disclaimer at the outset that we're recording this podcast the week after we received uh, the fairly shocking news that Justice Russell Brown was retiring from the Supreme Court of Canada. And we had intended on recording this uh, podcast uh, before that point. And so we, we just want to acknowledge that at the outset. But, but really, the conversation that we're going to have is, uh, goes beyond any one individual. And it actually um, ties back to, to, a, a, to broader trends um, that, that aren't tied down to any one particular judge. So, so we're aware of that. We're not intentionally avoiding uh, the issue. That's, uh, and it may or may not come up. Uh, later on, but that that's really not the focus of our discussion today. So with that, I'll, I'll start the conversation off by asking a very broad question so we can uh, get the general tenor of uh, your piece that appeared earlier this year in policy options, which is broadly speaking, how in your respective views does the Supreme Court of Canada differ as an institution from the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, I can uh, kick things off maybe, uh, and if I'm sure I'll miss something, so Gerard can uh, can contribute in a moment. Uh, this is a it's a gigantic topic, a gigantic question, and one that has attracted a lot of uh, fervent interest across, uh, I'd say, the political spectrum, across the legal spectrum. Uh, in our piece, we tried to take a bite out of this problem and at least complicate our idea of what it means to be a liberal judge, to be a conservative judge, the extent that these labels even make sense. Uh, but I think the big, one big thing that, one big differentiating factor between uh, Canada and the United States and their Supreme Courts is simply just the appointments process. Uh, the appointments process in the United States is far more tied mm -hmm. uh, to partisan maneuvering, to partisan outcomes, and it's been that way for some time. Uh, in Canada, I, it's just a different story. Uh, we don't expect that judges appointed by one party are necessarily, necessarily going to reflect that party's partisan views at any particular point in time. Uh, we, we take a different view of judging uh, at what, what it means to appoint judges in, in that sense. And there's just a much 
loose connect, a much looser connection between party affiliation uh, and judging in Canada than there is in the United States. Now that raises all sorts of interesting questions about uh, one other sort of level of this, which is political ideology mm-hmm. and the extent to which that is a factor in Canada compared to the United States. And um, I'm sure we're going to get into that in a few moments. But the first just obvious and important difference, I think, has to do with partisanship, the role of political parties in controlling and conditioning the appointment process, and how in Canada we just don't have those inputs in a partisan, in such a partisan way as they do in the United States, even though, of course, uh, appointments are made to the Supreme Court or other courts by people who are part of political parties in Canada. Gerard, do, do you have anything to add to that? And, and maybe I'll kind of contextualize Mark's answer there a bit by raising um, the the updated process for Supreme Court appointments that was implemented. Um, uh, it was first implemented in what eventually resulted in uh, Justice Malcolm Rowe's appointment uh, to the Supreme Court, where individuals are now actually uh, applied to the Supreme Court. And then at the end of the day, uh, when a judge is selected, that um, appointed judge has their their application and their their statement and all of that uh, released to the public. So, um, to to what extent do you think this process has had any has had an impact, if any, on um, on perceptions of uh, partisanship at the Supreme Court of Canada? That's a really interesting question, and I haven't thought about it in quite that way before. Um, At the end of the day, it will ultimately be the prime minister who makes the decision as to who is appointed to the Supreme Court. As Mark notes, there's nothing remotely similar to the hearings and confirmation process that happens in the United States. I do think the application process does add an element of, I won't say transparency, but knowing that it's transparent to at least a few people involved in the process, rather than simply a tapping on the shoulder and ensuring that everyone uh, meets the eligibility requirements and is explained to the prime minister through the committee why they consider themselves to be um, an appropriate candidate for this role. Now, one could say anyone who wants to apply to be on the Supreme Court is it's, it's an odd thing to apply to want to do. Um, having said that, there are clearly people who do aspire to it and who are qualified. The committee process by which there are members of representatives of the legal profession, they usually member of the, of the law dean, um, all these people coming from appropriate regions of the country. When Justice Michelle Bonsuin was appointed, there were specifically um, uh, individuals representing Indigenous groups who were on that committee. That certainly goes through a triage point so that the PMO cannot appoint whomever they want. Um, so that itself is a major di- differentiating um, factor. Has it changed who has actually been uh, appointed? Probably. We don't really know, but I can't see how process couldn't have at least influenced it somewhat. So on that point, I want to move and talk about this this mantra about lobbying politics and you address this in your piece in policy options and it's an interesting mantra because there are different ways that you can interpret it and there's there's one sense in which it's actually um there's there's a certain level of obviousness to it and there's been some very thoughtful scholarship that has uh studied uh this idea including by Emmett McFarlane at the University of Waterloo who's uh done a fair bit of research into 
the influence of the Supreme Court of Canada as a political institution. But there's another sense in which this term is used, which you both, I think, are trying to refute in your piece, which is this idea of law being nothing more than partisan politics and the application of law, particularly at apex courts, such as the Supreme Court of Canada, just simply being an extension of uh, the same kind of partisan politics that we see in the legislative branch of the state. Uh, and, and you say that, you know, this, this narrative that is so readily used to describe the Supreme Court of the United States uh, cannot apply to the same extent to the Supreme Court of Canada. Why is that? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, well, first, I just want to plant a little bit of flag here. Even in the United States, there is a surprising amount of unanimity on that court, particularly on non-contentious matters, when the court is just interpreting a statute, for instance. Um, and to the extent that there's division on many of these cases, they don't necessarily break down on predictable lines to the extent you would um, expect. Having said that, um, there is no question that on contentious cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, the link between party of appointment and result is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. That is simply not the case in Canada. And what is more, I think underlying the hypothesis that, you know, all laws, politics. Um, I mean, to some extent, if you're talking about the courts are resolving issues that historically resolved by the political branches, um, sure, that, that, that's understandable. But there is an implicit um, expansion of what it is to say that something is political mm -hmm. that I think can obfuscate real differences between how individuals um, approach law and how they approach partisan politics. Mm -hmm. We particularly see this in the criminal law context, whereas many judges who are frequently called um, conservative end up having quite pro-accused positions, which is not necessarily what you would expect if you were just expecting that the judges were essentially taking their marching orders from political um from partisan political actors. So I, I don't disagree with Anne McFarlane that certain normative commitments, for instance, to say a preference for clearer rules and predictability might manifest itself in both a fairly constrained view of the judiciary and also um, a, a preference, other things being equal, for conservative politics. But Things are a lot more complicated than the simple narrative would suggest. And the degree of unanimity on difficult cases is surprising. So anyways, those are some mildly coherent thoughts. I don't know if... No, that, that's excellent. And Mark, I want to get your reaction and your, and your thoughts on this. And I maybe want to um, kind of pose a, a sub-question within that as, as you uh, add to what Gerard just said, which is, are, are there any, you know, Gerard, you just said that generally speaking, we don't typically kind of see this partisan breakdown that you would um, necessarily expect. But are there any kind of outlier cases where that that has uh, turned out to be the case, where judges of who have been appointed by uh, prime minister of one political stripe side one way and judges who uh, who are appointed by a prime minister of a different uh, party uh, decide a case another way? So, so, Mark, what are your 
what kind of thoughts would you add to, to that discussion? Yeah, I think uh, before answering that, I'll just kind of, um, I guess, add to what Gerard mentioned and say that the way that the claim is typically made that uh, all that law is politics uh, is just is a very comforting way, I think, of viewing the world, uh, especially these days. We live in, t- in times when it's uh, when categorizing people according to political tribe or political label is a really comforting and an understandable way to view how people think about things. Uh, that's I, I mean, that's the, people self-identify this way for a reason. The problem becomes when the label and the comforting the comforting label doesn't become a, a, a useful way of describing what the reality is. So there is a banal sense in which law is politics, as Gerard said, when politicians appoint judges, when legislatures pass laws that are then interpreted by judges. And then at a higher level, when judges have a view about the way the law should work in the context of our constitutional system, uh, these are ways in which we might say that law is political. But it's certainly not political in the sense that people in the world use the label to describe or to make uh, observations or categorizations about the world. It's far more complex and deep than that. And by simplifying it in this way, uh, and we mentioned this in our piece in Policy Options, I think we risk creating the problem that we're worried about. We risk bringing into the world or wishing into the world this idea that all of law is infected irreparably by politics instead of viewing law as a way to restrict political outcomes or, or you know, in a, in a constitutional sense, at least, to restrict political outcomes. It's a different mm-hmm. way of viewing law. So I think that the label and the way it's typically described uh, is sometimes used, uh, weaponized to get to this outcome of politics infecting law. And it, it creates a problem where we might actually be creating, we're creating the problem we're complaining about. Now, like I said, there's a, uh, there's a banal sense in which this is true. And there are cases that we can look at at the Supreme Court where uh, partisan appointments seem to line up. What comes to mind right now off the top of my head is the uh, sex offender registry case, criminal law case that broke along relatively predictable partisan lines. Uh, but this is, of course, not always the case. And even in the United States, uh, it's funny we're recording this now, uh, the Supreme Court, I think it was last week in the United States, just decided uh, this Brackeen um, case on the Indian Child Welfare Act. And in it, uh, very interesting splits on that issue. Concurring opinion written by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Sotomayor and Jackson. These are not people that you would consider to be uh, fellow travelers, and yet here we are. So I think the the point here is just that the label not very useful in terms of how we actually think and puzzle through what uh, what judging actually is in Canada. Mm. No, and, and just, like, just sorry, can I just add something on what Mark please. has said about this um, about this whole issue? Is that as he said, there's a banal sense in which you could say, "Oh, law is politics," but to the extent that that's true, it's not particularly interesting. To the extent that this is right particularly interesting. Uh, it's of dubious truth value and create some some problems if we put too much weight on it, because maybe the United States is the end game of this. But even that, it's more complicated than we sometimes think. Right. There, there, there's a sense in which, you know, to say law is politics is, is almost trite. 
um, you know, there, there is a, that kind of base level in which I think most serious, you know, um, sober observers understand that to be true to some extent. But there is this broader way in which, as you're both saying, uh, we, we can run with that idea um, to, to potentially more dubious uh, ends in a way that, that it doesn't necessarily um, accurately reflect uh, the way in which our institutions are, are made up and actually uh, address these problems. And so, you know, on that point, we, we just talked about uh, the registered sex offender case, Mark, where you mentioned that the, the Supreme Court, uh, interestingly, tended to follow along these kind of partisan lines. But of course, there are uh, many other cases uh, that uh, arguably more cases, it would be interesting to do a, uh, an empirical study on this, um, but where uh, the judges uh, don't follow along party lines and where you even see the judges uh, unanimously coming to the same conclusion on, on some of these issues. And so, you know, historically, we go back, uh, this, this was the case in 2015, arguably, uh, in, in Carter, where the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the previous uh, criminal prohibition on uh, medical assistance and dying. Uh, but more recently, we, we had the case of uh, um, uh, the Queen and Bissonnette, uh, in which um, we saw uh, the court unanimously uh, come to this conclusion regarding uh, Section 12 of the Charter and the guarantee against cruel and unusual punishment in the case of, uh, of the individual who uh, was found guilty of uh, the, the very horrific shooting that took place at the mosque in Quebec City. And it's interesting because last year on the podcast, we had uh, Yuan Izu and Carrie Sun on uh, to talk about this case. And I, I don't think either of them would uh, disagree that they both approach these issues from a fairly you know, broadly conservative perspective, uh, depending on how one defines that. But I think both Carrie and Yuan would agree that that, that reflects uh, their approach to these issues. And we discussed um, the nature in which this decision was unanimous, and, and they were both, uh, as, as broadly speaking, conservatives, very critical um, of that ruling. So I'd be curious to get your take on this. Uh, were you surprised that Bissonnette in particular uh, was a unanimous ruling given the issues that it posed, and, and especially given the fact that it seems that these sort of unanimous decisions coming up uh, from the court have have decreased significantly under, uh, or at least frequency, uh, under the leadership of Chief Justice Wagner. Yeah, uh, so I, I mean, I think um, uh, Bissonnette's a great example or a, a great talk, a great piece to talk about in terms of this law and politics theme, because it, uh, you would expect on a case like this, really deep divisions mm -hmm. uh this is a matter this is well first of all the facts of course are just are horrific every canadian knows about them every canadian if, will have strong if ever there was a tough on crime case this right. Is it, right i mean this is it doesn't get uh much worse yeah. frankly and uh if there was ever a case where the application of the law would be contested this would also be it uh questions mm -hmm. of of punishment have always been uh, difficult and controversial in the law. And so it would have been no surprise to see divisions. And yet that's not what we see. We see unanimity on the application of the constitutional principles uh, in that case. And I think that just uh, goes to show maybe that uh, divisions, the divisions that we can conceive of on the Supreme Court, while they may be getting deeper in the Wagner era, are not as deep as uh, people might think or even some people might want. Uh, the divisions are, if there are divisions, uh, they're more likely to have to do with a normative differences in how we view 
the constitutional order and the way it should be interpreted. So, for example, uh, a case like City of Toronto involving um, uh, the, the role of unwritten principles in Canadian constitutional law, that's a case where we did see some divisions, some interesting divisions about uh, the way our constitutional structure works. And on that level, uh, I think those divisions are good. But in Bissonnette, where, um, you know, even though the facts are difficult, we do see some unanimity, perhaps because the content of the constitutional guarantee wasn't um, um, a constitutional law in that case, wasn't a matter of debate among the judges as much as we might have thought. So it's an interesting counterpoint, I think, to this idea that uh, law is just a function of either partisan politics or some other extraneous value that's not 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 really involved with the case that the court has to hear in front of it. Gerard, what I'll do you mean? That, well, Bissonnette is obviously a very visceral example of a case that got a lot of emotions high and the court came back unanimous. That was uh, right in the same spring where the court also decided the, the, the Queen, as it still was at the time, and Brown and the Queen and Sullivan concerning extreme intoxication as defense um, for, for crimes. They were unanimous in that front. Um, earlier this month, in the Council of Canadian Ref, uh, of Refugees case, it was unanimous on how to approach the constitutionality of the safe third country agreement, a very complicated matter. It was unanimous uh, earlier this uh, spring in the Murray Hall case concerning federalism. So we talked about the court maybe being more divided in the Wagner era, and, and maybe that's true. But again, I think this problem can easily be overstated. And to the extent that we see um, um, blocks emerging or differing judicial philosophies, they appear to be on issues such as the role of the court vis-a-vis -vis the legislature or vis-a-vis -vis the executive. How much predictability do you want versus discretion for individual judges to dispense justice in particular cases? And these are issues that I think the people who we can say fall in different camps they tend to be consistent in that regard, irrespective of what the politicians would want in a particular case. And that I think is worth emphasizing. Right, so there's a sense in which there's, there's a certain degree of uh, predictability on, on specific issues about where judges may fall. And, and, and of course, you know, things never, uh, don't always work out the way um, observers expect that they will but but it's interesting that it doesn't seem like there is always um the predictability that one would expect on on any given issue based on on how one may try to um label or describe a judge so in your piece and policy options for example uh you talk about uh, the queen and tessier at, and how there was a joint dissent in that case between uh justice brown and justice martin which is not the pairing that uh, a lot of observers would normally uh, expect given how those judges have gone in different directions on some of those broader those cases that raise broader questions of constitutional interpretation such as uh, such as city of toronto and then even if you go back uh, a few years now it's hard to believe that it was it was five years ago but if you go back uh, to trinity western and just the ways in which uh, the court divided uh, in that case and how uh, you know, you had the majority saying one thing, you had Justice Brown and Cote and the dissent saying another, and then somewhere in the middle, you had uh, then Chief Justice McLaughlin and, and Justice Rowe saying their own thing. So so are, are there other cases that you can think of where uh, the, these blocks perhaps have, have been less predictable than one might anticipate? 
Well, one one thing I think that uh, the case you mentioned, uh, Chris, one one theme that I think it raises is that is the level of division that we've talked about is occurring at a bit of a higher level than this partisan or just or ro- or sort of rank political labels. It's occurring at a deeper level about uh, how to interpret the Constitution, role of legislature uh, at this sort of level. One uh, interesting part of Tessier is that the jurisprudential disagreement in that case doesn't cash out in predictable partisan or political ways. So, uh, you know, the, the concurrence in that case was, uh, as Gerard was mentioning earlier, could be described, I suppose, as conservative in one sense in that it seemed to prefer uh, clear rules. It seemed to prefer uh, restrictions over police conduct. Uh, that were clear to the to all parties involved, and uh, that actually ends up leading the the judges that adopted that view to a result that we wouldn't describe to a conservative judge or to a conservative point of view. So the level at which this debate is occurring it can't really, uh, in my view at least, can't really be deduced to political labels, and so the camps as we describe them are. A little are not predictably political in the sense that mm-hmm. we would think. Uh, again, the, the, the disagreements are occurring at a at a higher normative or theoretical level than than this. And Gerard, I want to give you an opportunity to to wade in on that, but this is maybe a good segue, and we've been kind of skirting around this throughout our conversation about these labels, and and you will sometimes see them attempt to be applied. In Canada, uh, this idea of there being liberal judges and conservative judges, some journalists tend to very much emphasize uh, these labels in their reporting on on certain cases or in trends at the Supreme Court. Um, how, how do you feel about applying these labels? Do you think there's value in doing so? Is it helpful, or or, or is it is it more fraught? Or do we need to be mindful of you know the metrics that we use when making this assessment of? what makes a judge quote unquote liberal or conservative? Yeah, I think in the past I've described these labels as misleadingly simplistic, which is not to say that there isn't anything there. Um, But I think when many journalists report on someone being a conservative judge, a lot of people who aren't following the Supreme Court as closely as say Mark or I do, will immediately think, aha, Therefore, they are going to be aligned with the policy preferences of conservative governments, when in fact we see a very mediocre uh, predictability in that regard, perhaps because some judges who have that label may want, for instance, a greater emphasis on predictability and rules vis-a-vis discretion, or they may have a fairly traditional view of the role of the judiciary, uh, certainly vis-a-vis the legislature, but not necessarily vis-a-vis the executive. Um, and and many judges who might be called progressive judges may be um, far more inclined to uh, give executive actors a greater space in which to play. So, um, and then I think if people say, aha, this person's a conservative judge, this person's a liberal judge, they will, there's a danger that they will not respect the judicial philosophies and the unique um, logic and training that goes into law because they will simply attribute it to partisan actions in the way that that is used on a day-to-day basis. Again, as Mark noted, there's a way that you can use the word political and then the observation that law is politics becomes banal. Um, 
but while that is sometimes used to defend using these terms, the implications could be much more difficult or complicated, I should say. Mark, anything to add on that point? Yeah. Uh, the first thing I'd just like to say is that the labels do, the labels do, I think, have conversational value in the real world when we're out having discussions with friends and we're talking, maybe we're talking about politics and we use the word liberal conservatives or some conversational value, short, short form value. But these labels are changing all the time, too, and they they're slightly indeterminate, uh, to say the least. So let's just say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, what a conservative was is very, very different than what it is now, uh, markedly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could probably say the same for these other labels. And so as these labels change and evolve over time and as they point towards different substantive points of view, they become less useful in describing uh, the legal arena where the changes that uh, are occurring in the political arena may not be carrying over quite as easily. So that's the first thing. The labels themselves, uh, I think, lack some lack some determinacy. And then I'd otherwise just agree with, uh, with Gerard that um, unless we are people that want to see certain partisan r- results, unless we want to see conservative results or progressive results, then using these labels isn't really uh, descriptive of what's happening and, or even what should happen. Uh, if we're lawyers and we're interested in the law, then the mm-hmm. labels seem to be getting at something else rather than uh, the legal disagreements that are occurring uh, on, on the Supreme Court. And, and I want to touch on this point because it's it's interesting because it's a debate that has happened within the Runnymede society and it's happened uh, many a time behind closed doors and and over meals and after conferences and whatnot. But it's also happened uh, more broadly in a, in a public way and in articles that have been written uh, between Runnymede members responding to one another on this issue um, of, of really kind of what makes judges liberal or conservative. And, and typically the conversation is more toward what makes a judge a conservative judge uh, per se. And, and both of you have discussed uh, this idea of um, of, of many judges who might be described as conservative having, it's, it's almost more of a dispositional conservative or at least a, a conservatism regarding the role of the court as an institution vis-a-vis uh, the executive and vis-a-vis uh, the legislature. But there's another viewpoint that might define judicial conservatism as being more about uh, results. And that might respond to that and say, well, a judge is not a conservative judge unless they are delivering normatively or, or ideologically conservative results. So how do you respond to that debate to the extent that we're going to use these labels? And Mark, you say, and I think that you're, you're right in saying so, that there is some sense in which they may be useful short, shorthand, even though, as Gerard says, they can be simplistic and misleading if we rely on them too much. To, to, to what extent do you think um, the labels ought to be used? It, I, I think we have a sense here of what your answer is going to be, but should it be more should we use them more with regard to results in terms of what judges are deciding, or is it more about the process by which they get there? Well, to my mind, at least, it's certainly more uh, more about process methodology uh, in, in how we get to results than results themselves. Now, of course, we could use these labels to describe results. No, there's no nobody's saying don't use the labels, but it's just about uh, what what the purpose is that we're going to use the labels for. Uh, again, if you're somebody who wants to see conservative results, then you can use the label to describe uh, that 
that what that mission. But then I think we're in a different conversation about the role, what the role of a judge is. Uh, is the role of a judge to uh, sort of impose his or her own policy views on on the law, or to reverse engineer uh, an outcome, or rather, is it to interpret the law that whether it's a statute or the constitution? in a way that seeks to discover the embedded values or normative principles within that, those laws. These are two different roles of judges. Uh, in, the, in the latter role, uh, one that I would, would tend to adhere to, the predictive value of these partisan labels is probably very little because, again, the disagreement is occurring at a different level, level of methodology, structural interpretation and differences about, uh, say, role of judging, role of legislatures. Uh, but if you're somebody who is seeking certain results and you want judges to seek those results, then maybe it would make sense for one to use that label because you want to identify the universe of values or uh, views that you want to see implemented in the law. But these are, to say the least, two very, very different views of judging uh, that um, a lot between a, lo a lot of distance between them. Gerard, I want to get your thoughts on this, and I'm going to just throw it like um, another little contextual question to kind of frame your discussion. But is the is the fact that we're even having this conversation at all, is this unique to Canada? Is this a very Canadian thing to do to be discussing, um, you know, to what extent uh, we, we use these kind of labels of, of liberal and conservative is, is more of a discussion about disposition over ideology? I don't know if I've thought about that in quite that way before. Um, certainly we're having this conversation at a very different level than the United States is having. Hmm. Bracketing Mark's comment that there may be some people who are happily misunderstood uh, because they actually wish to um, simply use the labels like progressive or conservative to um, apply to the results of the case. But I do think that might be something Canadian about it in the sense that our judiciary is very powerful um, in a way that you don't actually see in most of the other common law states around the world in terms of the extent to which the judiciary can invalidate uh, legislation. So how you approach that task at a theoretical level, as an institutional level, um, is something that certainly I think may be shared by Canada, the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. has gone down a rabbit hole that I um, certainly I think it's, can speak for myself and I would like to say Mark is not something that really we want to emulate, but there still are important discussions to be had about what the role of the judge is in society. Um, and that, I think, is where most of the arguments been had in Canada. Uh, and it does not map on perfectly at all to what you would think would be partisan political outcomes. As, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, and we, we've touched on a lot of different points, I, I want to think a little bit about, um, you know, on this issue of thinking about applying these kind of descriptive labels uh, to judges as, as kind of a shorthand as we think about the way in which they generally uh, decide cases. We talked earlier about blocks at the Supreme Court, and we talked about how uh, the blocks don't always, um, they're, they're not consistent, and you can see kind of emerging blocks on different issues. And I want to ask this in light of, um, you know, Justice Brown's retirement gives us an opportunity to discuss this. But 
to what extent do you think uh, individual judges on the Supreme Court are potentially uh, influential in, in setting what those blocks uh, look like? So this isn't, you know, this doesn't apply just to Justice Brown, but to what extent does the loss of any one judge from the Supreme Court who tends to be more vocal on certain issues uh, potentially mean that we're going to see the court go in a different trajectory uh, once they've moved on? Well, I think it really does depend on the judge. I think that in some cases, uh, judges, uh, I mean, all the judges that uh, go to the Supreme Court, as Gerard said, it takes a special person to want to do that uh, and, and to be talented at it. But there are certain judges, I think, that we lose when we when they retire or they leave the court for whatever reason, uh, they take something with them. And I think uh, for, you know, for better or for worse, Justice Abello was was one of those judges, a judge that uh, set the tone in in many ways on the court on on, on many issues. Uh, I've written before that that tone is one that I disagree with on any number of issues. But nonetheless, it was a tone. It, it set the tone. Uh, in a way that maybe other judges haven't. Justice Brown is is of a similar uh, in a similar vein. Uh, I think most of the a lot of the commentary after his his uh, his retirement announcement was that he was an intellectual leader on the court in at least some ways. Uh, it, I mean, in areas of private law, I think that that's certainly true, and even in area in public law, of course, uh, he has certainly a track record to his name. And so I, I suspect that the loss of judges like that, like Justice Brown will leave a, a vacuum on the court in a, that will be difficult to fill, no matter who the prime minister chooses uh, in, in the upcoming appointment. So I think it, it does depend on the judge, um, but at least in the case of Justice Brown, we, we probably lost somebody with some intellectual firepower uh, that, that was you know, of, of service to Canadians. Gerard, we'll give you the final word, not just on this question, but on the discussion that we've been uh, having so far. Clearly, Justice Brown was a singular voice on the court. And as Mark noted, many have observed or have speculated, because we don't know entirely what goes on behind closed doors, that he was an intellectual leader on the court in vastly different areas uh, in private law, in especially almost forging a doctrine of separation of powers. And clearly, individual personalities make a difference. We do have human judges rather than color, um, sorry, human judges rather than just robots who are artificially implementing the law. And so that, that says something. And so we will obviously see who his replacement is, what that person brings. Will that person have as deep a background in scholarship, uh, Will they have as deep a background in thinking about, for instance, the separation of powers uh, and the political structure of Canada? Um, we don't know. Um, at the same time, uh, he it was rare that he ever wrote an opinion completely by himself. Uh, he had allies, and they weren't always the same allies, depending on what precisely the issue was. So um, we will just have to wait and see. Um, what sort of judicial philosophy the person who replaces him ultimately brings, though my suspicion, uh, certainly my hope, and I would and my actual expectation as well, is that that judicial philosophy will be at a higher level 
than attempting to uphold particular results. Right. And that I might ultimately be the thrust of the pieces that Mark and I have written this year, that these differences in philosophy are real. They have a non-coincidental overlap to one's partisan political orientation, but they really are of a different kind. Well, I think that's an excellent place to stick a pin in this conversation, at least for now, because as you say, Gerard, uh, you've got another piece uh, or other pieces that you're, you're working on. And, and the next one is coming out of the hub around the time uh, that this uh, podcast is likely going to air. So uh, our listeners can uh, go visit the hub's website if they'd like to read that. And we very much looking uh, look forward to what uh, you both continue to write on this very uh, very important and, and fascinating topic in the future. But for now, we'll say Gerard and Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. And we look forward to having you back on again in due course. My absolute pleasure, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone, produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now.